Good afternoon. One of the toughest things to do is to address an audience after lunch. So there will be a short quiz after this. <laughs> Pay attention. Uh, the word Haram brings to your mind uh, images of war, uh, oil, war, of Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction. To my mind, the word Iraq brings to my memory snow-capped mountains, majestic valleys, taking the water into these mountains, the mountains of Kurdistan, down the passageway of the Tigris and Euphrates, creating an incredible water wall in the middle of a barren desert, a water world that I grew up in, a water world in the middle of which there's a civilization called the Ma'dan, the Sumerians, who invented writing, who invented cities. Well, actually, cities predate that, but invented temples, who used reeds to build their houses, to build their islands, to feed their water buffalo, to, well, without these, these people, civilization does not exist. This is a false picture, a false color picture, South Africa, 1973, because that's the first picture that we can get. And it shows you the marshes in their glory. Uh, this is the Tigris. This here is the Euphrates. This is Shat al-Arab. This is Hueza Marsh, which is shared between Iraq and Iran. And this is the Central Marshes, and this is Hamar Marsh, which actually was the passageway of the Euphrates until 1954. I'm not going to waste too much time talking about the history of these marshes, because there's more to this speech than, than, than talking about my, my homeland. But when you see black here, it means there's no vegetation. It means water. I mean, all, all, the, all the light is absorbed, and therefore it's black. What is here, to your mind, it is, it should be plants. And the redder, the more, the, more, the, more, the more thick the plant cover is. And you can see that in 1973, prior to the dam building era, it was an incredible lush water world. The distance here is about 100 kilometers, the distance here is about 80 kilometers. And you can, uh, it is larger, twice as large as Florida Everglades. I don't know what is equivalent in England. These are the marshes in 1997. What used to be a beautiful, lush water world became a dust-encrusted desert. What used to be lakes became a salt, what we thought at the time, salt-encrusted places. Uh, what was lush became barely alive. What happened? Well, what happened is that in 1991, following the eviction of Saddam Hussein's army from Kuwait, and at the call of President Bush Sr., Iraq wanted to rebel. Soon thereafter, Schwarzkopf allowed helicopters to be used. And civilians cannot fight helicopters. And so, as we have done for millennia, the remnants of the rebels went into the, into the marshes to hide. The marshes are our Sherwood Forest. It's where we go to escape the Sheriff of Baghdad. And this is what we have done for eternity. So, if Saddam was about anything, he was about control. He was not going to allow these rebels 
to be used by the West. Because they might as well, by giving them arms, sort of like they did with Mujahideen in Afghanistan, or they're doing now with the Free Syrian Army. So he set about, at the time when Iraq not, was not allowed to sell a single drop of oil, the entire GDP of the nation of Iraq was used to excavate six major rivers and construct thousands upon thousands of kilometers of embankments holding the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates. One of those rivers you can see from satellite is two kilometers wide, called the Gold River and Nahr uh, al-Izz. And the local dialect, they call it the Nahr uh, al And I don't know how to translate dil. It means uh, indignity. Uh, simply, this is the Euphrates. Simply what they did, what he did was basically, what his engineers did, did the impossible by redirecting the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates away into the Gulf. Presumably, and according to their, to the official record is that Iraq was in need of agricultural land, as if all the agricultural land in Iraq had been developed. Anyway, that's the state. Uh, result of the drying of the marshes, the wetland, the water world of my youth, became a dead, salt, encrusted, tumbleweed encrusted desert. One thing seeing satellite pictures on the ground from the from, from the desk. Another thing entirely seeing it up ground, up up close. I tell you, before 2003, uh, I was preaching about the restoration of the marshes, and I was telling uh, the Americans as well as whoever would listen that uh, the evidence of open and mass destruction that you're all looking for is right underneath your eyes. He used the deprivation of water as an open and mass destruction to destroy a 9,000-year-old culture. Of course, nobody was wanting to listen to that. Everybody was looking for chemicals and, and nuclear weapons. Uh, be that as it may, when I was telling people that the marsh should be restored, that this is, this is a world heritage site, that this it does not belong to Iraq alone, it belongs to everybody. Uh, some experts said, it can't be done. One British marsh advocate even told me personally and a gathering at the, in Geneva that the marsh don't want to come back, that they have become farmers, they have lost the skills to live in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the marshes. So when I went back to Iraq almost 10 years to the day, to the day, after 25 years of exile, I thought that I was going to have to convince the marsh Arabs that the marsh restoration is in their benefit. Well, that's one battle I had, did not have to fight. Because even before I arrived in Iraq, the breaches began happening. The marsh Arabs began restoring the water to the marshes. Not everybody did not want the marshes. Enough of them wanted the marshes back to start bringing the marshes back. And these people did not restore the marshes because they're tree huggers, like you and me. They restored the marshes because they wanted a way of life. They didn't want to be dependent on the government for their livelihood. Uh, they have lived off of the marsh and because of the marsh for thousands of years. And so restoration to them is basically the restoration of a way of life. And those who claimed that the seed banks were too old, all you had to do was introduce water, allow it to flow through, and six months later, the reeds come back. It's amazing. Nature, we just don't give nature enough credit. Fortunately for us, or those who love marshes, the reeds are the carp of the plant kingdom. They can live in brackish water. They can live in seawater. Uh, you can't get rid of them. In New Jersey, they've been trying to get rid of like a, a pragmatist of forever. They just can't get rid of them. Well, for us, we need them to live. And soon after the water came back, the forests of my youth came back. And here are women 
harvesting these as they do, and the water buffalo came back, and the fish came back with the water, and more importantly, marble teal came back. These pictures remind me of my childhood when I used to go around the marshes with my father, who was an avid duck hunter. I don't hunt. But in this picture, we documented 43,000 marble teals when the world known population at the time was 25,000. Uh, Cambridge, I think they ran out of champagne that night. Uh, there's no reason for this picture to be here except his guy's name is Saddam Hussein. And I thought it was unique when I introduced, when I, when I took a picture of Saddam Hussein harvesting reeds in the middle of the uh, uh, dry place that he caused. Um, well, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I think that is worth a thousand words. Now, let's look at the future. Now, this, this is about what this is all about. Now that you have a history of the marshes, a quick primer, I don't know how many, how many, how many minutes I have left. <laughs> but let's talk about the future. Okay, so, so we are in a climate change, which is the climate that used to be uh, coming by ice age, it become, became global warming, and now we talk, we talk about climate change. The era of climate change means less and less water. CO2 sequestration or CO2, the issue of CO2 has forced many nations to start building dams for hydroelectric power. Hydroelectric power has, is clean energy, right? It's renewable energy, it's sustainable energy. That's what you all know. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that, uh, uh, that, that dams, or that no engineering project, is pure positive. There's always a negative associated with engineering projects. I'm, I'm not here to preach against the dam per se. I'm here to tell you that dams have effects downstream. What do I mean by that? This is a hydrograph from the Hindia Barag, which is on the Euphrates. It shows you the pulse of the river. Every spring, as we speak today, the snows from the mountains of Kurdistan start melting. Fully 60% of the water of the Tigris and Euphrates comes to southern Iraq in two months, causing floods. These floods are bad for the cities, but they are part and parcel of the evolution of the biodiversity of the marshes. More importantly, it is the exact reason why agriculture has lasted for 7,000 years in southern Iraq without the need for fertilizer. The flood comes in with soils from the mountains of Kurdistan. It washes away the brackish water that accumulated in the marshes, just as the reeds are coming out of winter hibernation, just as the fish is spawning, just as the birds are migrating. It is the drumbeat upon which what I call the symphony of biodiversity is running. More importantly, the grasslands around the marshes get washed with this water of the tax Euphrates. The salt, the sabkha, that accumulates from evaporation of the year before gets washed away, and a new layer of silt and clay gets deposited on the farmlands, causing these farmlands to continue to be productive for thousands upon thousands of years. Well, here is the pulse. 75, big problem. Syria and Turkey began filling the first reservoirs on the Euphrates. The, the, uh, uh, Kiban and Assad. I remember that summer. I was in Fallujah. Fallujah, yeah, Fallujah of fame, or infamy. Uh, and I crossed the Euphrates walking that year. But the pulse came back. The reservoirs got filled. Yeah, it's not as big. It's a, it's a fainter pulse. 1991, 1992, the GAP project began building. Let's go back. 
just this dam at the top dam is capable of holding the waters of the Euphrates for five years. The reservoir is 98 billion cubic meters big. Well, the dump beat is gone. In medical terms, they call this a flat line. A similar story from the Tigris. So, does that mean the marshes are going to end? Are they going to die? So, Iraq and Turkey have been talking about these dams forever. Uh, you know, this morning we listened to the United Nations representative, uh, Carolyn, and I was tempted to ask, but I usually in conferences I keep my mouth shut and let, let people ask questions. But I was, I was, I wanted to ask, why is international law only applied on the weak? International law tells, gives Iraq the right not to be deprived of the water of the Tigris and Euphrates. We have clay tablets 7,000 years old that document the fact that Iraqis and the Sumerians were the first to use the resources of the Tigris and Euphrates. Why, is it not, and does, not, why does not international law, why is, not, why is it not used to help Iraq get its rights from Turkey? Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen. In this world, international law is only applied on the weak. In this instance, Turkey, a NATO member, future member of European Union is the strong. Iraq was and remains weak and will continue to remain weak as we fight the proxy war in the Middle East between Iran and the West and, and what have you. So we need to change the dialogue. I mean, as a person who is interested in saving the marshes, as a person who is interested in saving agriculture in the land where it was born, I want to change the dialogue, at least between Turkey and Iraq, and hopefully between Iran, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria in the future. But mainly right now, the problem is between Turkey and Iraq. We need to change the dialogue from whose water this is, Iraq insisting that international law is with it. Turkey says, the possession is nine-tenth of the law. Go do, go, 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 literally go drink from the river, from the, from the, from the sea. And we can continue that way. Iraq can threaten with war. Yeah, right, right. Uh, there's not going to be a solution. If we continue the current dynamics, what is going to happen is that the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates are going to continue to become more brackish, more salty, and I'll, I'll, give, you a reason for, I'll give you a reasoning for that uh, in a minute. And, 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 and shortly thereafter, within 20, 25 years, agriculture is going to die in the land where it was born. How? Why? The Farmers of Syria, Turkey, and Iraq, and Iran, continued to use the Sumerian method of irrigation, which was fine for 7,000 years, as long as we had floods and we didn't have dams. But in the era where there's no flooding, what's happening is that the farmer culture still uses too much water. We use flood irrigation. Well, flood irrigation was okay as long as there was flooding, but no, what happens is that when you, when you flood your farm, the water becomes more salty, it becomes laden with, silting, uh, it becomes laden with, with fertilizer, with, with, with pesticide, and then the drainage water is taken away from the farms and put back in the axis of the Tigris and Euphrates, progressively increasing the salinity of the water as you go down. Literally, if you are down in Basra, you are, drainage, you are drinking the drainage water of the entire basin, both of the Tigris and Euphrates. Moreover, the entire basin, the entire basin, the entire basin has no properly working sewage treatment plant. 
Dilution was the solution to pollution when there was flooding, but no longer it is. And so, how can we change the dialogue between us? How can we bridge? Do we stand by and watch agriculture die? Because I submit to you, the marshes are going to be restored, or the marshes that have been restored will continue to exist because, again, reeds can grow in brackish water. Fish can grow in brackish water. Birds can eat fish, and everything is fine in the marshes. What's going to happen is that agriculture is going to die. So there is a few ideas that I have that are going to be set for the next stage of, of, of our struggle. We save the marshes, now we want to save agriculture. Now we want to reduce the tension in the region and, and make sure that water does not become a source of tension and war, and, and, and war. The trick is there is enough water for everybody to live on. Only if we know how to share and how to share properly. So how do we change the dialogue? Turkey wants to sell water for oil. Iraq is not going to sell its historic right. So there will never be a treaty between Turkey and Iraq exchanging water for oil. Doesn't happen. But what we can do is say, let's purchase electricity from Turkey. For Turkey to generate electricity, it will have to release water. We get water as a byproduct. Notice, we did not buy water. We bought electricity. Turkey can say, I want 12 cents kilowatt hour. Iraq can say, well, it cost us 9 cents kilowatt hour. This is when I come to England and say, Kota Protocol says you're going to reduce CO2 emission all over the world. Why don't you help us bridge the difference between Iraq and Turkey? I go to the United States, and I say the United States, instead of putting two more squadrons in Ingelkirk to reduce tensions, to make sure that there's no war, why don't you subsidize the treaty? Do you understand? Now, for that to happen, we need to have economic models. I need you guys in Oxford, in Cambridge, in MIT, in, 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 in Caltech, to provide neutral advice to Iraqi academics and Turkish academics as they go about putting, uh, putting economic models that will help Iraqi politicians and Turkish politicians negotiate when the time comes. They're not ready yet. Iraqi politicians in themselves are fighting about the pie of the oil, 325 billion. You, you, think, you think Iraq has 143 billion barrels of oil? Guess again, 325 billion barrels of oil. Turkey, if it sells electricity to Iraq, actually will benefit more because if it transports the, the, the electricity from Kurdistan all the way to Istanbul, they're going to lose 30% of the electricity. So instead of sending it to, to Istanbul, they can actually send it to Iraq, losing only 10%. That, that means that they have 15 more percent to sell. You understand that. <laughs> okay. Two minutes. All right, we'll go through. I have about six or seven major ideas that need studies, that need to be, to, and this is, this is why I'm preaching. This is why I'm accept, accepting more and more engagements to talk, because I need to talk to academics. I need to inspire some academics to come help us solve this problem, create the economic models, publish these economic models in peer-reviewed journals so that nobody can say this is advocacy science. This is pure science that, that politicians on both sides can trust that their, their, their audiences, their, their, their voters are not going to say you sold Iraq's historic light or Turkey, you, you, you've, 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 you've succumbed to your economic, uh, uh, your pocket and, and reached a, a deal with, with Iraq. 
I tell the Iraqi government that you need to modernize irrigation, not only in Iraq and Turkey and Syria and Iran, uh, not only in Iraq, but also in Turkey, Syria and Iran. Not because you love them, but because you love yourselves. You want to save agriculture in Iraq, go to drip irrigation. And instead of burning $100 million, $100 million worth of gas a day, as we do in southern Iraq, from the associated gas and the flared gas, let's invest $2 billion in a small petroelectric, petrochemical plant and convert that gas into drip irrigation pipes and give it for free or in subsidized prices to Turkey, Iran, and Syria. Again, not because we love them, but because we love ourselves. If, in fact, we go to drip irrigation, we're going to reduce the drainage water coming back to the Tigris and Euphrates. That means the water of the Tigris and Euphrates is not going to be salty. That means we're going to have a lot more water. That means there's going to be a lot more produce. That means we're going to have economic connections between Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. And the more we have in economic connections, the less the chances are we're going to go to war. For that to happen, uh, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to go too much. There's, there's, there's other idea. We, right now, we're trying to save Mosul. Mosul Dam is, is classified by the, S, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as the, as the, as the most dangerous dam in the world. If it, if it breaks, Mosul is going to be under 20 uh, meters of water. So is Baghdad. So instead of spending two billion dollars fixing Mosul Dam, why don't we lease reservoir space from Turkey? The point is, we need to think outside the box. I'm not going to keep on going about the, there's, there's, there's the ideas. The bottom line is we have to increase economic ties. The more economic ties, the chances are we're going to reach an agreement on the cooperation of the management of the tax and Euphrates between Iraq and, between Iraq and Turkey. Hopefully, we'll include Syria and Iran once they join the rest of the world after they finish their own problems. And I have no doubt that globalization is going to result in the wiping of borders in the Middle East. Just like you all in Europe, 17 years after World War II created the common market, we will have a fertile crescent market. And it will also, it will also include Israel. Because we have to live. We have to live together. There's no other alternative. Somebody said that it needs 50 years between conflict and, 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 and resolution. OK, so I will not be there when it happens. But as Martin Luther said, I've been to the top of the mountains, and I've seen where we're going. I may not be with you, but it will happen. And just because it's hard doesn't mean that we don't start. Thank you. Thank you so much, Azam. We can take one, one question while we're changing the, the uh, presentations, if there is one. <laughs> 